All right. So Isaiah, we're back. Uh, it's, you guys have had a couple weeks off from it. Um, a lot of the time, though, when you get into Isaiah, there is uh, this kind of repetitiveness. It almost sounds like he can be a broken record at times. Um, and that's, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Isaiah sort of says the same things over and over again. It's because he has one main point. He has one main message through this whole very long book of the Bible, the longest book outside of the Psalms. Uh, and, and yet the, the point of Isaiah is very simple. It's this, that God saves sinners. That's the message, that God takes sinners and brings them to himself. And Isaiah wants us over and over again to hear that message. And of course, he says it in different ways. Um, he, he approaches it in, in, from different angles, but that's what he's telling us. He's telling us that we have strayed, we have, we have gone our own way, we, we have done things that, that are outside of God's will. That's what it means to be a sinner, uh, to be someone who is um, outside of, of what God has d- desired for all of us to be, and that is really, we're meant to be perfect, but because of our sin nature, because of Adam and Eve, because of all the things that have happened, we are, we're always short of that. We always fall short of that perfection. And so because of that sinfulness, we, we are not in right relationship with God by nature. We need God to intervene. We need God to come into our brokenness and reconcile us and heal us and bring us to himself. And that's the message of Isaiah. He wants us to hear that God does that, that he pursues his people, that he loves us. Uh, even in our wanderings, he is, he's going to draw us to himself. That's a wonderful thing. So in this text, in the next two chapters through this, uh, through this book, we're really going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ come forward again and, and mainly be applied to two different things, two things that are vitally important and think two things that we all struggle with on one level or another. And he's going to first deal with this, this issue of self-reliance, like the idea that we can somehow save ourselves or somehow make ourselves right with God by, by being smart enough or good enough or whatever enough. He's going to first address that. And, and then he's going to give us, in, kind of in the middle between these two things, he's going to show us Jesus. We're going to have this beautiful uh, explanation of Jesus and what he's going to do. And then he's going to address the second issue, which I think is just as prevalent in us as the first. And that is this spiritual complacency or, or laziness in us that just sort of accepts God's grace and takes it for granted and not doesn't, don't, we don't see that changing us and transforming us. So there's these two things, these, these equal issues that happen in the Christian life. There's, there's first our belief that we can save ourselves, that God has to destroy from us. He has to break that whole thing down. And then he comes in with Jesus, showing us that Jesus is truly the hero that we need. But then he also has to deal with and address the, the problems of our apathy and our or spiritual laziness, and just kind of, okay, yeah, God loves me, great, I'll just go on living how I want to live. So these two things are going to be addressed in Isaiah 31 and 32. So we'll we'll start here in the first part of uh, the the passage. We'll start in verse 1 of 31. 
Look, look at what it says. And this is a, I know it's been a couple of weeks or three weeks since we've uh, seen these things, but he's just going to repeat basically what he has already said in chapter 30. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Now, let's put that into the context in case you've forgotten what chapter 30 was dealing with. You probably have, and that's okay. Um, e- Egypt was, of course, a country not far from Israel. Israel is a, was a very small, geographically very small nation, still is. Um, but but it was surrounded by some real strong superpowers. The Assyrian Empire uh, was one of the primary enemies that Israel had. And, and Assyria is basically on the doorstep of Israel, ready to invade, ready at this point in history, right? ready to invade and, and conquer Israel. And so they're freaking out. Uh, understandably, they're freaking out. They don't want to be destroyed. Uh, they don't want the Assyrians to come in and, and, dis- and take, take everything from them and take them off as, as slaves and all the other horrible things that, that could happen. And so what they've decided to do despite the fact that God has said to them numerous times through Isaiah's mouth that he's going to rescue them, he's going to protect them, he's going to save them from this Assyrian threat. They don't believe that. They don't believe that God is, is going to do this. And so they have gone down to Egypt for help. They have reached out to one of the most historic enemies that Israel has. If you remember the book of Exodus, even if you've never read the Bible, you maybe have seen um, the, 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 the Prince of Egypt, uh, that cartoon, or the, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston's version, and whatever it is, right, you've seen the story. You un- we all know the story where e- the Egyptians were enslaved for 400 years under uh, the, the Israelites were enslaved but to Egypt for 400 years and uh, th- that God miraculously rescued them and saved them from that slavery. Now they're going back to those same people that had been, had been their historical uh, enslavers. And God's saying, what are you doing? Woe to you who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. See, so the problem here is that it's not just that they're making this alliance with Egypt, thinking Egypt can save them from Assyria, but rather they're turning their backs on God who has promised to help them. And they've traded his help for human help. He's, they've traded the help that the Lord can bring to them for these chariots and these horsemen, basically this army um, that is made up of human beings and, and you know, flesh and bone. And they think that this strength that Egypt has in their army can be what saves them. Essentially what's happening here is this, that they, they believe that they, as Israelites, that they can rescue themselves by their own intelligent alignment with this other country rather than trust the Lord. And so look what happens. In verse 2, he says, yet he, who is, yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. 
and they will all perish together. And God's telling them that your, your plan to save yourself, your attempt to get yourself this help that I'm offering to you is ultimately going to lead you to your own destruction. He says, you're, you're trusting in men and not God. You're trusting in the strength of, of a military and not the spirit of God. And so the Lord is going to stretch out his hand and he's going he's to make the helper stumble. So Egypt is ultimately going to fail to help Israel. And those who have been helped will fall. He's saying your, your rebellion is actually going to backfire on you and lead you into, uh, it lead you into the Assyrians' hands. And so God is saying here, he's warning them that he, he alone can help them. They can't help themselves. So what does this have to do with us, right? That's the question. Well, the, the, the important thing we need to recognize is that while we're, our issue is not that we're calling out to Assyria for help or to Egypt to help us uh, against Assyria, it's, that's not our thing, right? We're not doing that. We, we live in a different point in history and different time. But all of us, on one level or another, have believed that we can save ourselves. And we think that if we can just do enough or be enough, that God will just let us, let us be with him. It's, it's the, it's the age-old lie that if you are good, you will, you'll be saved. That is such a prevalent lie, in our, especially in our culture. Right, where, where we, as in the Midwest, like we pride ourselves in being nice people. We pride ourselves in, in, in being good, decent folk. And, and yeah, by God's grace, you know, a lot of us are nice people. But being nice is not what it takes to be saved. It takes the power of God to transform our hearts and to make us one of his. It doesn't, it doesn't happen just because we're good, decent people. So we've got to break free from this belief that somehow by our own ingenuity or our own goodness, we can save ourselves. We can't do it. We can't do it. And, and by attempting to do it, we're going to find ourselves worse off than when we started here, just like they did. So, so the Lord is going to then come in here and he's going to answer this issue for them and for us. Verse 4 says, For thus says the Lord to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. Turn to him whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrians will fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. His officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So what God is telling Israel in this is this. He's not afraid of the Assyrians. He's not afraid. He describes it like this. that there, It's like a lion uh, who's eating uh, his prey, uh, in this case a sheep, 
and the shepherds come out to scare the lion away. And the lion is not phased, right? Like a lion is not going to be scared off by some dudes with, with some sticks and stones, right? Like it knows that it can destroy them all. So it's not going to run away. And this is, this is how God's saying, I'm not afraid of Assyria. I'm not scared of what you're facing. I will rescue you and I will save you and I will spare you if you turn to me. And that's, that's the key, right? It's turn to him, Isaiah says. Turn to him who, from whom people have deeply revolted. You have revolted against the Lord, but you can come back to him. You can return to him. And, and in that day, when you do, your idols will be cast away. The things that you're trusting in to, for your hope and help, well, you'll throw those away because you'll see the Lord as your only help. And he promises them here that Assyria will fall, that Assyria will be defeated. Now, he, it's going to take time ultimately for that to happen historically, but it will happen. God will rescue his people from Assyria. And he will rescue you. He will rescue you from your sin and mine. He'll rescue us from our deepest enemies. And so we see this first message, this message that's been repeated over and over again in this book already, that we only can lean on the Lord for salvation and hope. There's no other name that we can turn to. There's no other, there's no other God who can save us. There's no man that can do anything for us to ultimately rescue us from our enemies. We need only the king that God has for us, which is Jesus and that's where he comes in. In verse 1 of 32, we, we get this interlude where we're promised what Jesus would be for us. If you look at this, verse 1 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. A king will reign in righteousness. Who's Isaiah talking about there? You're in church. The right answer is Jesus, right? So that, that's the answer. Jesus is the right answer in this case. He's, taught, he's, he's preparing us for, for this amazing Savior who will come, who has come from our point of view, who had not yet come from their point of view. Right? So there's this king who will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Notice what the promise is of this king. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil, his plans are... He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Now, all of that is describing the effect of what Jesus will do. Jesus comes into the world to truly rescue his people. 
And, and as he does, as he comes in, as we trust in him, what we experience in him is a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Jesus is our hiding place. He is our rescue in a turbulent world. He's like streams of water in a dry place. I, I, I never really grasped the, the importance of, of a stream of water in a dry place. I mean, they lived in a very dry desert place. Um, I, I have very little experience with this, but I will say, I'll share one thing. When I was in Guatemala, this, this became very real to me uh, because there was one night, we all, we all got sick, okay? We all got sick from drinking something or eating something. It was terrible. It was truly terrible. But um, nonetheless, uh, we had one night where all of us were sick and we were at a hotel and it was in the middle of nowhere. It was a very small little town hotel. Um, probably wouldn't recommend you stay at this hotel, but it was, it was fine. It was, we all lived. Um, but we, we all got sick. And so when you're sick, you need the bathroom, right? And, and in the middle of the night, the water stopped working in this hotel. Just no water anywhere to be found. And we're just like, we're all going to die here. <laughs> like, I, I was exaggerating. But I'm just like, I, this is bad news. Like, we need water. And you just don't appreciate water until it's gone, right? And that's what Isaiah is saying. Thankfully, the water came back by morning and we were, we were able to, you know, take care of our th- ourselves. But this was, a, this was like, holy smokes, we need water. <laughs> water is so vital. And, and here we have this promise of Jesus is like water in a dry land. He's, he, he is what we need ultimately. Even more than water, we need him. And he is like that water. He, he o- opens the eyes of, of, of people. He opens our ears to understand. He, he, he shuts down foolish people. See, that's what all of this beautiful thing that the king of righteousness will do for us. He cares for us in, in every way. He, he's, he meets every need. If we trust him, he's calling us to trust him and to, and to believe in him. And so we're, we're given this beautiful picture of what the king of righteousness will do if we trust him. So the first, so there is a trajectory here. There, there is a gospel kind of trajectory where we, we all begin in verse 31, we begin with this belief that we can save ourselves and we have to be convinced we can't. Once, we, once we're convinced that we can't save ourselves, then enters our trust in Jesus. And Jesus becomes for us and meets all those needs. But, but then this is what happens next as we keep going through the passage. Starting in verse 9, we're going to see a shift in what Isaiah is talking about. And it's, he's now going to be talking about spiritually becoming complacent or apathetic or lazy in our lives. So once we see Jesus, once we believe in Jesus, now we enter into this whole new area of risk, which is we might take him for granted and stop trusting him. And stop leaning on him. Even as Christians, we may not always lean into Jesus as we should. And so now Isaiah is going to give us warning about that and tell us how we can avoid this. So let's look at verse 9. He says, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. 
for the grape harvest falls, fails and the uh, fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous house in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. So what we're seeing here is this. Isaiah turns his attention to the women in Jerusalem. Now, this is not just a, a men and women's problem here, but specifically the issue here is that you have the men in chapter 31 freaking out about the military problems, right? And so they're trying to figure out a way to save themselves. Meanwhile, you've got the, the women in the, in the culture who are just sort of like hanging out. They're not worried about anything. They're not freaking out. They're not even, they're not even concerned. They're just complacent. He says the word complacent three times in uh, 9 through 11. He calls them complacent, at ease, uh, people who are just sort of apathetic and uninterested and they don't want uh, to deal with any of this. You see, then that's, that becomes the issue uh, for a lot of us as we walk in the Christian life for long enough, we become very unconcerned. We stop caring, perhaps, about growing in Christ. We stop caring, perhaps, about maturity in the Christian life. We just, we just want to, you know, get our ticket to heaven punched and, and move on with our lives and do whatever we want. There's a danger there. They're warned about this complacency. God is saying to them, listen, you are going to go through some really terrible things your, your, your grapes aren't going to grow. Your fruit harvest is going to fail. And guess what? In that culture, you had a failed fruit harvest. You weren't going to eat. You weren't going to have food. He's, he's saying there's going to be pain in your life. You know that's true for you too. I know we live in a really wonderful country, but we are still people that have uh, problems and difficulties we don't have perfect lives here on earth. We live in a sinful world. And, and here's the thing. A lot of times when tragedy strikes a person's life, if they're not grounded in this king of righteousness who is for them streams of water in a dry place, if that's not where you're finding your source of life and joy in Jesus, then when tragedy hits and when trouble comes, and it will, by the way, it's not really if, it's more of when. Because every one of us, by, we are, we're one phone call away from disaster. Every one of us is. We don't even know what may be on the horizon. So here's the thing. What happens when that trouble comes? If we're complacent and at ease and apathetic to what the Lord, who the Lord is and what he's done and, and how we're called to live within that, then what ends up happening is our faith is just turned in upside down and we, we doubt all of this. You see it happen all the time with people who go through tragedy, go through hardship, and suddenly it's like, oh, I'm out. Jesus is obviously not good or he's not real or he's not there or whatever it is. We, we buy into these lies because we've bought into uh, this mentality of just, I can just do whatever I want. I don't need to care. 
I don't need to care. We do need to care. We need, we need to stop being complacent about the Christian life because it's in, it's in complacency that, that begins to breed this, this potential doubt and fear that ultimately Jesus is, is there to meet. He is a shelter in the storm. I don't think it's an accident that Isaiah begins before he leads into all of this stuff about the fruit harvest failing and all the things going bad for these, these people. It's not an accident that he starts with this reminder that, that the king of righteousness will be a hiding place for you, will be a shelter for you, will be shade in a weary land. He is those things, but if we forget that and we just live like it's not true here and now, then when something does happen, we're going to be very likely to just fall away from him. And Isaiah is warning these, particularly these women, but it's, it's just as true for men. It's not just for women. But in this culture, at this point, that's, this is the audience that needed to hear this. And so what does he do? He calls them to repentance. He calls them to, to turn. He, he says something that may sound sort of, uh, perverted, but it's not when we understand it. He says, he tells them to strip and make themselves bare and tie sackcloth around their waist. Now that's, that's not being gross. It's just saying that was an outward sign of repentance. You would take off your comfortable clothes and you'd put on uncomfortable sackcloth. Sackcloth is basically burlap. It's not something you want to be wearing, but it was an external sign of an internal repentance of your heart. And so he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to, to mourn over their sin, to turn back from them. But then he again goes back to remind them of the hope they have in, in this king of righteousness. Look at verse 15. It says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness, now whose righteousness? Don't read this and hear my righteousness, but hear Jesus' righteousness, the effect of his righteousness given to you. Right? That's the, the, the doctrine that you have to really need to embrace and believe because it's biblical is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. What that means is, in, in plain terms, is that Jesus is perfect and he gives you his perfection. And he, then he takes all of your sin and puts it upon himself on the cross. So when he gives you his righteousness, here's what happens. The effect of that righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. He says, my people will abide in peaceful habitations, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. And what he's telling them is this, that if you're in a complacency point in your Christian life, if you're just like, I, I don't know that I really care about any of this. I, I, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. So I'll punch that card. I'll, I'll say I believe in Jesus, but I really don't want to live like I believe in Jesus. If that's where you're at, the, that's not going to lead you to the effects of righteousness. It's not going to lead you to peace. It's not going to lead you 
to quietness and rest and trust forever. It's not going to take you there. It is, it is being, we need the reminder of the gospel that Jesus is for you as a sinner um, as much as he is for you as a follower of his. That, that we need Jesus as much as Christians as we did before we were Christians. We need him to not only save us from our sins, but to save us from our complacency. And that's where really the, the message that I, Isaiah is trying to get across to his people. And, and I think there's a, totally a connection to us as well. But as we get into the New Testament, we see this, this exact same thing coming out in the letters of Paul in particular. And there's, there's a number of places I could take, take you to show you this, this connection, but I'll take you to the shorter one for the sake of time. If, if you go to Titus chapter two, uh, 3, rather, if you go to Titus 3, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll spend a few minutes in this. Titus chapter 3, Paul's writing and he's concluding his letter to this, to this young guy who's uh, pastoring a church in Crete. Crete was a little island uh, off the coast of Greece. And uh, that, that church was just a mess. It was a mess, as most churches are. Um, and, and so here Paul's reminding Titus of what he needs to instruct his people with. If you look at verse 1, uh, we're going to look at 1 through 8, but uh, I want you to see that this is a direct correlation to what Isaiah is talking about. Um, the things that Paul brings out are the same things, just worded differently, but the same things that Isaiah was saying um, hundreds and hundreds of years before these words. He says this, Remind them, that is his church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So he starts with this instruction to go, Here, here's how you should live your life as a Christian. You, you should be submissive to authorities. You should be obedient. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be trying to just be an anarchist and do your own thing. You should, you should actually be ready for every good work. And, and what are those good works? He kind of lays out some of them. Speaking evil of no one. Speaking evil of no one. That is very hard to do. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Basically, you can summarize all those things with one word, peace. Right? The effect of righteousness will be peace, Isaiah said. When the grace of God gets into our hearts, the effect is peace. That's what Paul's saying. And, but he ties this back to the gospel. Look at, let's keep reading in verse 3. He, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So here's a snapshot of what it looks like when you're not in Christ. The result is not peace, the opposite of peace, right? War with one another, conflicts, disagreements, fighting, hatred. Verse 4, But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, that is a change of heart, right? Regeneration is giving a new life, a new heart, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified and is made right with God, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says this. Here's what he's saying. Saying that the gospel produces peace, and we know that because what we once were before we knew Jesus was we're not peaceful people. We were the opposite of that. But he also reminds us of what Isaiah reminds us of, that we cannot be self-reliant and our own saviors because God couldn't and didn't save us by our own good works. He says it as clear as day. God saved us. He saved us in verse 5. He saved us. You didn't save you. I didn't save me. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. He didn't save you because you were good. He saved you in spite of the fact that you were not good. You were sinful and so was I. He saved us, not by works of righteousness, but by his own mercy. Jesus looked at you with mercy and chose to save you. The gospel is a reminder that we can't save ourselves because we're incapable of saving ourselves. And so the only hope we have is that Jesus would save us, that he would show his mercy to us, that he would extend his grace to you and me. So there's the first part of the Isaiah passage, right? Verse chapter 31, which really deals with that self-salvation issue. But let's keep reading because we have one more verse here that begins to tie in the rest of it. He says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. He's telling Titus, a church leader, to insist on these things for his people. He says, so that those who have believed in God, that that those of you who have trusted in Jesus, those of you who have believed on him, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There is the second piece of our Isaiah passage. The gospel not only reminds us that we can't save ourselves, it also reminds us that we can't be spiritually lazy because God has called us to be devoted to good works. He's called us to growth in in righteousness and holiness. He's called us to keep pursuing and you cannot grow if you're apathetic you can't grow you can't be devoted to good works apathetically right like devotion and apathy are opposites of each other paul says you can't just coast through the christian life with your heaven you know ticket to heaven punched and and just ride this out you need to be devoted to good works he tells titus to insist on this for his church It's not a suggestion. It is vital that we recognize that the gospel saves us apart from our works, but it saves us to good works. 
It saves us for the purpose of doing good works. It saves us so that we're actually devoted to love each other and pursue each other and care for each other and meet each other's needs and, and be what we need to be. All of that is, it can't, it can't be done if we're just coasting. We've got to be devoted to these things because Jesus has saved us from our sins. We're not, we're not saved from our sins because we're devoted to good works. That's the cart before the horse, uh, transmission before the whatever. Yeah, I don't know what you said that. But right, that, that's the cart. You, you can't put the cart in front of the horse. And so you have, to, you have to recognize that this flows from the gospel, not it doesn't produce the gospel in you. So let me just give you a couple things before we close. How do we get there? How do we devote ourselves to good works? How are we to, to see Jesus work in us and through us to get us there? I'll give you three things because this is not a, this is not complicated. This is, um, this is real simple. There's three things. We need the voice of God. We need the voice of God. That is his word. If you and I are not in the word, if we're not reading the scriptures, if we're not immersing ourselves in what God has to say to us, then we're never going to grow. You'll never be devoted to good works if you don't know what God has said to you. And, and listen, I, I don't mean to make this some you know, big legalistic thing, and I, I've, I've been on the... On the, the the other end of that stick where growing up in a, in a church that was really well-intentioned, but th- there were certain people that were just like hammer you with, are you doing your devotions in the morning, first thing out of bed? You're, you're, you know, I, I'm not that guy. I'm not like that, but I do believe very clearly that we need the word. Here's why. We need the word because it's what the Bible says is the bread from heaven. It's, it's how God feeds us. It's how he feeds us. Jesus in the wilderness, when he was being tempted by Satan, told Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You, you, you can't grow without a healthy diet. You can't grow without food. You, you see children that are malnourished, they're not growing. They're not growing, not as they should. They're oftentimes you know, sadly, right, they, they have deformities. They have, they have massive health, problem, health problems. We need food to live physically. We also need God's word, which is his food for us to grow spiritually. That's number one. The second thing we need is we need his ear. We need, we need to pray. We need to talk to him. I'm amazed in my life, and I'm not as consistent as I should be on it, but I know when I see when I see character flaws in me, sin issues in me, um, I've, I've just found that when I actually pray and ask the Lord to help me, he actually does help me. It's amazing how the Lord actually does things when we ask him to. Maybe you're, you're wondering why you're not growing and it's because you haven't actually asked him for any help. We don't save ourselves and we, do, we also don't mature ourselves. God is involved in the entire process. We have to talk to him. We need to pray for our own growth and we also should pray for one another. The Bible's very clear on this. 
that God wants to hear from us. And, and if you're concerned about something in your heart, you should be praying to him and expressing that concern and asking him to help you in it. If you're concerned about someone else, it's not helpful to gossip about them to someone, but you can pray to God for them. And that just, that completely can change a situation. We're, we're so much quicker to go talk to somebody else about someone we're annoyed with rather than actually bringing them to the one who can actually do something about it and change that person. But, but I, here's, here's the other thing we need to hear. Most of the time when we're irritated by someone, it's us and not them that are the problem. Are, are, we, are we talking to God about these things? Do we have his ear? Are we, are we going to his ear in prayer? And here's the third thing we need to grow. We need the people of God. We need the church. We need one another. The, the Bible does not present Christianity as an individual sport, but as a team sport. I'm not good at sport analogies. I'm much better at food analogies, obviously. Um, so I'll stick with those. But, but we need each other. We, we can't go through the light, Christian life alone. The Bible is extremely full of examples and admonitions of being together and doing Christ, the Christian life together. And so here's the thing. If you're, if you're isolated from relationships with other Christians, you're not going to grow the way you should. I, I think like if you were stranded on a desert island and all you had was the Bible and the ability to talk with God, you'd probably grow, but that's not where most of us are. We're not on desert islands. We've been brought into a relationship through the church with other Christians, and we should pursue those relationships. We should be in, if you, it doesn't have to be a formal small group thing, but you should have a group of people around you that you can go to and, and pray with and bounce things off of and get wisdom from, and we need each other. We need each other. We need people. We need to pray. We need the word. These are the things. Now, this is not a magic thing, right? It's very simple, basic, but it's what transforms our lives. When, we, when we're immersing ourselves in his word, when we're speaking to him in prayer, and when we're engaged with other people in the church, that's where we begin to move upward. We begin to see our devotion to good works grow. If one of these three things is lacking in your life, then, one of those, then, then there's going to be some stunted growth. If one of these three things is, is missing from your life, then you can't expect to see what God would do in you if they were all there. This is, this is the way in which he has designed us to be and to grow. And so let's pursue it. Let's, let's be a people of the word, not just Sunday morning, which we're, we're committed at this church to be Bible church, and we, we want to have our Bibles open, and we will always be a Bible open church on Sunday mornings, but we need it more than just on Sunday mornings. We need it every day, and you can do this on your own. You don't need anyone to do this for you. You have a Bible. If you don't, there are Bibles on that back table that are nice and shiny and new, and you can take one home and read it. Uh, we, you can take one of the beat up ones from the, from the pew if you want, if you're attached to one of those. Uh, they're for you, right? We, you, if you don't have a Bible, you need to do it and you need to get into it and read it. You need to pray and you need the people. And so let's, let's pursue these things. Let's be devoted to these things. Let's insist on these things in our church. And that's where we're going to begin to see the gospel grow in our hearts. 
So let me, that's all I've got. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll partake of the Lord's table together um, as well as pers- uh, sing some songs in response to who God is. Father, we thank you for your grace to us today. We, we confess to you that our shortcomings, we, sh- we confess to you, Lord, that we are not who we ought to be. None of us are. Only Jesus is the King of righteousness. And so we confess that we need you, Lord. We need you um, to speak to us, to, to mature us, to grow us. Would you do that, Lord, in us? Would you help us to, to do that for one another as well? We pray, Father, for the rest of our, our time together this morning that our hearts would respond to you as you would lead us to respond. If we haven't trusted you, would you help us to do that? Would you call us to repentance and, and lead us there? If we've, if we've become plateaued and apathetic towards you, would you change us and mature us and grow us in these things? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.